Right now, switch your family to T-Mobile and get four lines for $25 a line with AutoPay and 5G access included on America's largest 5G network. So don't wait. Get unlimited and nationwide 5G access for the whole family for just $25 a line. Visit a T-Mobile store or T-Mobile.com today. Plus taxes and fees. Customers may notice lower speeds and further reduction if using over 50 gigs a month due to data prioritization. Video at 480p. Unlimited while on our network. Qualifying credit and four plus lines required. Capable device required for 5G. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain features. See T-Mobile.com. The Leslie Marshall Show. The only true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Hey there, I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome to all those watching uh, as well as listening, people listening on radio, people listening on a stream, and some people will listen later, not live, uh, via a podcast or whoever they choose uh, to get the show. Some people watching today, watching for the first time on Facebook Live, hello, on uh, YouTube Live, hello, and on uh, Twitter and Periscope Live. Hello to everybody. We have a great show in store. Julian Zelizer, a uh, professor uh, from Princeton. You see him and uh, read his writings for CNN and CNN.com. He's had some great books and he has another one coming out. We're going to talk with him about his book and about some great stuff. So stick around. How many times can I say great, right? But one thing that we like to do at the top of the program normally is a little thing called ripped. Headlines. In the early hours of July 15th, after a night spent protesting at the Multnomah County Justice Center in Mark O. Hatfield Federal Courthouse, Mark Pettibone and his friend Connor O'Shea decided to head home. It was a calm night compared to most protesting downtown, but by 2 a.m., law enforcement hadn't used any tear gas. And with only a few exceptions, both the Portland Police Bureau and federal law enforcement officers, well, they pretty much had stayed out of sight. A block west of Chapman Square, Pettibone and O'Shea bumped into a group of people who warned them that people in camouflage were driving around the area and unmarked minivans grabbing people off the street. This is like out of a horror film, isn't it? Uh, Pettibone said, quote, so that was terrifying to hear. They had barely made it half a block when an unmarked minivan pulled up in front of them. Quote, I see guys in ammo, O'Shea said. Four or five of them pop out, open the door, and it was just like, oh, blank, S word. I don't know who you are or what you want with us. Federal law enforcement officers have been using unmarked vehicles to drive around downtown Portland and detain protesters since at least July 14th. That's according to personal accounts, multiple videos that have been posted online showing these officers driving up to people, detaining individuals with no explanation of why they're being arrested and driving off. Yes, this is America. We're democracy operating as a republic. Last time I checked. The tactic appears to be another escalation in federal force deployed on Portland city streets. And I just want to be clear, the mayor of Portland doesn't want them there. The mayor of Portland doesn't have the authority to ask them to leave. And technically, they were only supposed to be there in Portland, in downtown Portland, to protect federal property, which is within their right legally. 
but they've branched out. There was a guy, as we know, this past weekend that was peacefully hold, holding a speaker, and he ended up with a facial, facial fracture, a fractured skull, uh, because of these uh, federal forces. Uh, they've been deployed on the streets of uh, Portland. Federal officials and the president said they plan to quell nightly protest outside the federal courthouse, and uh, that the uh, Multnomah County Justice Center um, that it's been lasting now for six weeks. But see, that's not the reality, because if you look up until like last week, it was pretty peaceful in downtown Portland. Federal officers have charged at least 13 people with crimes related to the protests so far. Others have been arrested and released, including Pettibone. And I mentioned that one demonstrator hospitalized with skull fractures. He was shot in the face with so-called less lethal munitions July 11th. It's less lethal you live but your face is broken. Your skull is broken. Officers from the U.S. Marshal Special Operations Group and Customs and Borders Protections BORTAC have been sent to Portland to protect federal property during the recent protest against racism and police brutality. Interviews conducted by OPB show officers are also detaining people on the streets of Portland. Those people are not anywhere near federal property. And it's not clear that all of the people being arrested have engaged in any type of criminal activity. Because last time I checked, we have a constitution, a First Amendment that allows us to peaceably protest and to voice our freedom of speech. Demonstrators like O'Shea and Pettibone said they think they were targeted by federal officers because they were simply wearing black clothing in the area of the demonstration. Kind of reminds me of the Trayvon Martin hoodie days. O'Shea said he ran when he saw people wearing camouflage jump out of an unmarked vehicle. That's scary as hell. I mean, this is not Iraq. Do you know what I'm saying? Afghanistan. This is the United States of America. This is Portland, Oregon. He said he hid when a second unmarked van pursued him. Video shot by O'Shea provided to OPB shows a dark screen. O'Shea narrates the scene. Metadata from the video, by the way, confirms the time and place of the protesters' account. O'Shea said on the video, feds are driving around grabbing people off the street. I didn't do anything effing wrong. I'm recording this. I had to let somebody know that this is what happens. He did not escape the federal officers. He said, quote, I'm basically tossed into the van and I had my beanie pulled over my face so I couldn't see and they held my hands over my head. By the way, this is something we do when we detain terrorists and protesters, not terrorists. Are there some people who use the protest to terrorize or to loot? Absolutely. But the overwhelming majority of protesters believe in what they are fighting for, truly are fighting for racial justice after so much racial injustice and are doing it peacefully in Portland and elsewhere. Pettibone and O'Shea both said they couldn't think of anything they might have done to end up targeted by law enforcement. They attend protests regularly. They said they're not instigators. They don't spray paint buildings. They don't shine laser pointers at officers. They don't do anything else other than attend the protest. And law enforcement have regularly deemed the protest unlawful assemblies. So he was blinded by his hat. He's in an unmarked minivan full of armed people dressed in camouflage and body armor who had not identified themselves. You have to identify yourself, I thought. Pettibone said he was driven around downtown after being unloaded inside a building and he wouldn't learn until after his release, he was inside the federal courthouse. Now, by the way, this is not their jurisdiction outside the courthouse. And if you bring somebody in a federal courthouse and you have, you have detained them, they need to be read their rights. You need to identify yourself. And it needs to be a federal crime you're detaining them for because you are federal officers. There are local police in Portland, Oregon, who 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 do not work at the behest and command of Donald Trump, but rather their city, state, and other local officials. He said, quote, it was basically a process of facing many walls and corners as they patted me down, took my picture, and rummaged through my belongings. Took his picture? One of them, he said, 
uh, said, this is, uh, th- one of them said, this is a whole lot of nothing. Pettibone said he was put into a cell. Soon after, two officers came in to read him his Miranda rights after being put in the cell. They didn't tell him why he was being arrested. He said they asked him if he wanted to waive his rights and answer some questions. Pettibone declined, said he wanted a lawyer. The interview was terminated. 90 minutes later, he was released. Big. So if you ask for a lawyer, they're going to let you go. All right. He said he did not receive any paperwork, citation or record of his arrest. In other words, they were messing with him. He wasn't really being arrested, was he? They let him go. They didn't even arrest him, even though they read him his rights after throwing him in the cell, not identifying themselves. Right. Don't don't come on. We all watch Law and Order a few times. You know, step out of your house. John Smith, you know, you are arrested for the attempted murder of Jane Doe. Please put your hands behind your back. We're going to handcuff you. Uh, You have the right to remain silent. That's it. That's how it goes. And that's how it goes in real life. Um, He said, I just happened to be wearing black on a sidewalk in downtown Portland at the time. And apparently that's grounds for detaining me. After 7 p.m. last night, a DHS spokesperson responded on background that they could confirm acting secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, was in Portland during the day. The spokesperson didn't acknowledge the remaining questions. Um, And attorney Juan Chavez, director of the Civil Rights Project at the Oregon Justice Resource Center, said, quote, it's like stop and frisk meets Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay. Absolutely. What did these guys do? I mean, seriously, are they going to waterboard them for fun? Chavez has worked on litigation surrounding the weeks of protest and helped lead efforts to curb police, local police, from using tear gas and munitions on protests, which, by the way, Portland police aren't supposed to do. He called the arrest by federal officers terrifying. I'm kind of wondering also, is it legal? He said, quote, you have laws regarding probable cause that can lead to arrest. It sounds more like abduction. It sounds like they're kidnapping people off the streets, which is a crime locally and federally. Ashley Albies, the civil rights attorney with the National Lawyers Guild, said Pettibone's detention is an example of intimidation by federal law enforcement. She noted people have a First Amendment right to demonstrate and that law enforcement officials have to follow procedures when they detain someone. I think we'd all agree procedures weren't followed here. You don't need to be a cop. You don't need to be a lawyer. You don't need uh, you know, to do that, okay? Quote, I would be surprised to see that pulling up in an unmarked van, grabbing people off the street is, is an acceptable policy for a criminal investigation. In a letter released yesterday, Wolf said, quote, Portland has been under siege for 47 straight days by a violent mob, while local political leaders refuse to restore order to protect their city. That's not true. Look it up yourself. Everything it's that guy just violent. says, bullshit. Yeah, it, it's you. not been violent for 47 days. A federal courthouse is a symbol of justice, Wolf wrote, denigrating protest against racism in the United States. A criminal justice system is an angry mob. To attack it is to attack America. And this week... Trump has repeatedly spoken about out about what he calls lawlessness in the city. He praised the role of federal law enforcement officers in Portland. He alluded to increasing the president and city presence in cities nationwide. He was on Fox yesterday uh, talking, uh, uh, acting not he, acting U.S. Customs and Border Protection Commissioner Mark Morgan called the protesters criminals. And that really pisses me off because the majority of the protesters are peaceful. And somebody who commits a crime is a criminal. He said, quote, I don't want to get ahead of the president in his announcement, but the Department of Justice is going to be involved in this and we're going to do what it needs to be done to protect the men and women of this country. Are we protected if we're kidnapped and thrown in a van for wearing black, not Mirandized, not having the officers identify themselves? That, that, that doesn't sound like protection to me. I'm Leslie Marshall. That's the first part of Rip from the Headlines. We'll take a break. More Rip from the Headlines when we return right after this. 
If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Leslie Marshall, welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy and Talk. We continue now with more of what's ripped from the headlines. The, it's becoming almost routine now, sadly, but yesterday was yet another record day for the novel coronavirus in the United States. An astonishing 77,255 new virus cases were reported across the nation on July 16th. That shatters the previous record of 67,791. That was set two days ago. The numbers come from Johns Hopkins University. They are the leading authority on keeping track of the global pandemic. The state of Florida saw a particularly sharp spike in cases yesterday, recording its second highest day ever, a daily total of 13,965. That's according to CNN. And in total, the United States has now recorded 3 million 576,430 cases of COVID-19, at least 138,359 people have died from this that we know of because there are people out there that have died. I may, we may have thought it was from the flu. Remember, we may have had this since November. We don't really know. Let's rip another. And as new coronavirus infections are detected in record-setting numbers across the southern and western parts of the country, including here in California where I am, causing many hospitals to be pushed past maximum capacity. No hoax, folks. A newly updated model from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation predicts that the U.S. death toll from COVID-19 will rise above 224,000 by November 1st. What? Notably, the IMHE predicts America's death toll could be reduced by nearly 40,000. If what? If what? Something very easy, something we can do, we have control over. If nearly all Americans wore masks in public. Think about that. If we could reduce the death toll by 40,000. I don't know about you. I I feel like a, a moral, a personal, and a human responsibility to be a part of that. By the way, if we could reduce it by one because maybe that one's your parent, your child, your spouse, your friend, or you. Isn't it worth doing? Put your mask on. An Axios Ipsos poll released this week found that 62% of Americans overall are wearing a mask all the time. That's up from 53% when the same question was asked two weeks ago. So some people are coming around. My husband's a physician. And he said, we have a responsibility as a society. This is not political, folks, and we shouldn't make it. If we want COVID to be in our rearview mirror, we need to really not only be in this together, but work together to get this behind us. Let's rip another. Nearly one in three children tested for the new coronavirus in Florida has been positive, kind of throws out the idea that kids aren't getting this. My husband and other medical professionals, I have an ER doctor that's a neighbor and and many others uh, in our circle of friends would tell me one of the reasons they think that we haven't seen record numbers of children here or in other countries is because when this thing first came out, one of the first things we in other countries did, Italy did, UK, Germany, South Korea, uh, New Zealand, China, um, they shut down schools. And so what happened is the children were home. And then we limited uh, movement of adults. And when adults, like when I went to the store, I didn't bring, I still don't bring my kids. I go to the store. So the children aren't as exposed to the virus as we adults are. 
it doesn't mean that they can't get it. And it doesn't mean that they're going to be immune to it and strong. There's research showing that if you have a vitamin D deficiency, I do, one of my children does, you're more susceptible. There's research that shows in the UK that if you're Indian or Pakistani, Southeast Asian, my husband is, my son is. Uh, my son's Pakistani, my husband's Indian, my daughter's half Indian. My son's Pakistani because we adopted him in case you're wondering, well, why wouldn't your son be where your daughter is? For those that are late to the game, <laughs> been living under a rock, not listening to me all these years here uh, in writing or on TV. Um, and there's there's research that certain blood types, uh, like, you know, that O, which my husband is, um, are less susceptible to getting sick when they get um, COVID-19. There's so much research out there we don't know. And there's not a lot of research regarding kids. So we don't know if they're not getting it in record numbers because they've been home and not exposed. Um, and we don't know really what happens to them if they get it. We know in New York that there were over 100 cases of an, uh, of an inflammatory respiratory disease similar to Kawasaki syndrome that they feel uh, was a mutation of COVID-19. But again, just not enough cases, not enough time, not enough research to really know. So nearly one in three children tested for the new coronavirus in Florida has been positive, And a South Florida health official is concerned the disease could cause, ready, lifelong damage, even for children with mild illness. Now, they're finding in adults heart damage, damage to the heart. They're finding in, in adults um, permanent damage of some kind. And they're also finding that people can be reinfected with covid 30, 60, or 90 days out from the first infection. So in other words, we still don't really know, which is why so many people are saying, don't just throw all the schools open. And yes, we don't want our children to have mental issues. Yes, we don't want people to be um, you know, concerned about childcare, especially if they need to go back to work and they're essential workers and don't have the luxury of working from home. Yes, yes, we get all that. But if we open all the schools and one child dies, are you okay if that's your child? I'm not. Because it'll be more than one, I fear. I hope I'm wrong. But already they're concerned the disease could cause lifelong damage. And by the way, it's not just about death. If your child lives, but they have lifelong physical health problems because they were infected even mildly with COVID-19, do you want that for them in their future? Is that what you want them to thank you for as an adult, the legacy you want to leave your kid? Dr. Alina Alonso, Palm Beach County's Health Department Director, warned county commissioners this week that much is unknown about the long-term health consequences for children who catch COVID-19, which, by the way, could be worse than the mental consequences of missing a few months, half a year, or even a year of school. X-rays have revealed the virus can cause lung damage even in people without severe symptoms. And by the way, a child doesn't have the lung capacity, an adult does. She said, quote, they're seeing there's damage to the lungs in these asymptomatic children. We know how that is going to manifest. We don't know how that's going to manifest a year from now or two years from now. Is that child going to have chronic pulmonary problems or not? Now, her comments, they're very contrasted to the governor, Ron DeSantis. His, his messaging is children are low at risk. The bottom line is we really don't know. Let's just be honest here. We really don't know. I'm tired of the politics. These are our children. We don't know. Now, if you live in an area that has very, very, very low COVID numbers, sure, open the schools. Your kids aren't high at risk. But I live in L.A. County, y'all, and it's spiking here. And my children right now are supposed to go back to school. They go to a small school here in L.A. County. But if, if, they just, if, if, if one child is sick, the whole school could be sick, even if you take precautions. And then you have wingnuts like Orange County that say, well, oh, you don't have to wear a mask. It's optional. Optional. Anyway, 
Uh, she said um, uh, the, the contrast by the governor. He said children are at low risk. And once again, I say we don't know that. We don't know. Dr. Fauci doesn't know. CDC doesn't know. How the hell would Governor Ron DeSantis, who's never been to medical school, know? Classrooms, he said, need to be reopened in the fall. He said he would be comfortable sending his children to school if they were old enough to attend. And he told Rush Limbaugh last week that the risk to children is, quote, very low. Again, he doesn't know. He said, I've got a three-year-old daughter and two-year-old son and a newborn daughter. And I can tell you, if they were school age, I would have zero concern sending them. Yeah, easy to say because he's not sending them, right? I'm Leslie Marshall. That's what's ripped from the headlines. Coming up, Julian Zelizer will be with us. But when we come back, Mark, can we just play that audio from the press secretary and then go to Julian? We'll be back after this. Julian Zelizer is our guest. He's a Malcolm Stevenson Forbes professor of history and public affairs at Princeton University and a CNN political analyst. His previous books are Fault Lines, a history of the United States since 1974. Also, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. Great book. I've read that one. The winner of the D.B. Hardiman Prize for Best Book on Congress. Zelizer has been awarded fellowships from the New York Historical Society, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation and New America. Oh, you show off. Today, he'll be discussing his newly released book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. More than a pleasure to have him back. Julian, don't be a stranger and be away so long. I know you're writing this. Good to have you with us and good to be able to see you as well as hear you on the show today. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, there, There's uh, so much to talk about uh, with this book. It, it, it's awesome. It's timely. Um, and you know, the Republican Party has just changed so much. I mean, you know, talking about Newt Gingrich days and then the days after Newt Gingrich and then the days now, especially with Donald Trump, who allegedly is a Republican and uh, a Republican president. When he was elected in 2016, um, President Obama had said that Trump was not an outlier, that he was a culmination, a logical conclusion of the rhetoric and tactics of the Republican Party for the past 10, 15, 20 years. End quote. You write that in your book, Burning Down the House. Um, first of all, why did you de decide to write this and why did you decide to write this now? I mean, you have great books and there are various topics. I'm sure as, as somebody who's so brilliant as you and, and teaches, um, you know, as a historian, uh, there are so many topics to choose from. Why this one first off? Why did you decide to, this subject matter for Burning Down the House? Well, I wanted to understand how the Republican Party ended up the way it is and to uh, I see the roots of the party going well beyond Donald Trump and to understand how do you move from what the party looked like in the 70s where the leaders were still concerned about governance, they still were always concerned about will our institutions work, to the place we are today, which is a smash mouth, tear down everything kind of partisanship. And I knew Gingrich was a key player. Uh, even before he was speaker, he changed what Republicans were doing. Uh, and there was also a specific story where he brings down the former Speaker of the House that allowed me to put a story and a moment and a person to how this all happened, rather than just talking about, well, voters sorted themselves and everything became more partisan. Would you say that Gingrich and his political career and his strategies in the 80s, um, that it not just in inspired what's taken place in the Republican Party, 
But it really started that divide within the Republican Party. You know, right now in the Democratic Party, people say there's two types of Republicans, uh, D- Democrats, excuse me, centers to moderates and more uh, far left leaning progressives, right? The AOC versus the Nancy Pelosi. Um, was was that, do, do you think, the beginning of the divide of the, you know, GOP? Absolutely. Uh, and and in some ways, his, his side won out. Uh, and, you know, basically he came in and he was seen by many as a Joe McCarthy kind of figure who would just say horrendous things on television about opponents. And he would just really threaten the ability of politicians to work together. Uh, and by the end of the 1980s, Republicans have made him one of their leaders, a position called House Minority Whip. And, you know, he's the one who brings this into the leadership and legitimizes it. And that's a really important turn for the Republican Party. And Republicans, many of them who were not like him, were enticed by what he was doing because his promise was Republicans had been out of control of Congress since 1954. And he said, I will deliver a majority to you, but you're going to have to basically be willing to do anything uh, to let the guardrails fall away. And and that's when that, that's the person who really uh, kind of convinces the party to follow suit. Do you feel that that beginning by Gingrich led to things uh, and, and um, you know, mutations, if you will, of the GOP like the Tea Party? Absolutely. Gingrich will go on to be the speaker in 1994. And during the 90s, many more Republicans, most Republicans, frankly, are speaking like Newt uh, yeah. and, and using his language. They're using his style. And, and he's their leader. He is an important one of the most important figures in the party, in the Tea Party, who comes in in 2010, they're simply a second generation of Gingrich-style Republicans. And as often happens, they become even more extreme. They're willing to take what he did and say, we'll go even further. Uh, But this is one continuum from him to the Tea Party to Donald Trump that I think uh, needs to be understood if you wanna see what the Republican Party is really about at this point in American history. So when we look at Donald Trump and and how out there and, and crazy some of his antics are, maybe not. People just aren't remembering there was somebody who, who you know, so, so Donald Trump is just maybe a larger than life version of Newt Gingrich, but he's not the first to have and use this type of style as a leader in the Republican Party. Why do you, why do you, I'm glad you wrote the book because people can remember, but why do you think people have forgotten? Is it, is it because Donald Trump is, uh, different than Newt Gingrich with regard to, you know, the reality show and, uh, you know, the the big persona that he had before he uh, became president and the celebrity status he had, uh, which Newt Gingrich didn't have, obviously, until he rose in the Republican Party. I mean, some of it's just our short memory uh, as we have public conversations of what's going on. We're constantly talking about the last five minutes rather than the last 20 years. And we tend to see things uh, as brand new. And and so we forget it's not even Gingrich. You can look back during the Obama presidency and we can remember what Tea Party Republicans were doing in, in the House. And it was pretty dramatic. They were threatening to send us into default. They were, you know, sharing the birther arguments about President Obama. So it was all there already. Um, but But the second part is he, President Trump, exaggerates everything to a million degrees. And so I think he's just providing an X-ray into the party that's impossible to ignore, even for stalwart uh, Republicans. And and he takes everything to even further extremes. And I think that's why it might be a little more pronounced. And some Republicans now 
from George Conway uh, to others are, are abandoning the party to some extent, or at least abandoning uh, President Trump. So he's just saying what was sometimes not said out loud uh, or in exaggerated form. But everything you see from him, I could you can find it in this book about the 80s. And that says something about the party. Yeah, most definitely. So after Newt Gingrich and, and certainly now with Donald Trump, that becomes the new normal. But when you look forward to November and when you look at what's happening in the country, um, you know, with COVID-19, uh, the Black Lives Matter uh, protest, um, you know, the the economy not being strong, uh, you know, unemployment you know, off the charts and, uh, you know, devastating kinds of numbers that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. Um, does this new normal help when you look at the Senate, for example, you have 23 Republican seats up for grabs, and I think, what, 12 uh, Democratic seats up for grabs. Uh, and the Democrats already have a very large, you know, majority in the House, and I think that will continue to perhaps expand. Um, are Republicans wise to continue on this new normal uh, wave of theirs uh, in light of the changes of our nation and in light of the change uh, in voters, not just demographics, but what is their priority? It's not the economy stupid anymore with what we're living through right now. Probably not. Many observers would say it's a it's a politically devastating path that to stick to this strategy, which is one power uh, since the 80s and has depended on the Electoral College, gerrymandering, et cetera, it's wearing thin. And, and the pandemic has put together this style of leadership with one of the biggest crises we faced, and the results have not been good. Uh, so there's an argument that Republicans are really risking their future by digging into what they are right now, rather than pushing for a new non-Tucker Carlson generation of leaders for the future. Um, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more uh, of you, and we're glad to have you with us. Julian Zelizer, Malcolm Stevenson, Forbes Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, a CNN political analyst. Congrats on that, by the way, Julian. I know we used to talk when you were uh, uh, like a freebie like I used to be back in the days with Fox. And he has a great new uh, book out, and I certainly hope you'll get a copy of it. It's called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker, and the Rise of the New Republican Party. We'll be back with him. We'll be back with you right after this. Don't go away. My life were like that. I said, wouldn't it be nice if we played Burning Down the House by Talking Heads? Boom, bam, there it is. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you, Marky Macromaldi. We are back with our guest, Julian Zelizer, Malcolm Stevenson, Forbes Professor of History and Public Affairs at Princeton University, a CNN political analyst, and his previous books, Fault Lines, A History of the United States Since 1974, and The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. He's winner of the D.B. Hardiman Prize for Best Book on, on Congress. He has been awarded fellowships in the New York Historical Society, the Russell Sage Foundation, the Guggenheim Foundation, and New America. We're talking about his new book, Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. Julian, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Have you had any comment from Newt on this? And did you interview or try to reach out to interview Newt on this at all? I haven't had comment yet. Uh, we'll see if he says anything or what he says. Uh, and I wasn't able to reach him. I, I had an ongoing multi-year set of appointments that were canceled every time at the last minute. 
I don't know why. Uh, and so it might have been something I wrote or said that he saw, <laughs> or it might have been he's busy. I will not uh, make assumptions. That said, he allowed me access to all his congressional papers in Georgia, which is really the heart and soul of what I do. And they were phenomenal. They, he, he kept records of everything. He kept memos, letters, so I could see firsthand how he did what he did. And I could see inside the party as it was changing. So in the end, I was fine uh, with that. And that was really what I wanted. And so the material was rich. Well, he used to be on CNN. I mean, he's on Fox now, but he used to be on CNN. He even had a show, you know, on CNN, um, I think, right, for a while. So, um, you know, you know, he, he actually I've met him. And as a liberal Democrat, there are parts of me that, that hate him ideologically. But personally, he was actually um, I don't want to say charming. I know they use that with uh, Donald Trump, um, but likable, mm-hmm. likable. And I've met a lot of people that I never thought I would like, you know, that, that I swear at the TV and throw my shoes at and then meet them in person. And, you know, they're likable. Um, let's talk about you. You mentioned that Gingrich elevated the rhetoric and the tactics that we see being used as the new normal now in the Republican Party. And we certainly see um, that Donald Trump does that. Something Gingrich also did. And, and and you're right, and I didn't remember until I read some excerpts from the book, is that he routinely mixed facts and fiction. He would smear opponents. Um, you know, he did, like you said, use that brass knuckles uh, form of politics. Um, and, and, and it's interesting. I'm wondering, going forward, after Donald Trump, whether it's one term, which I'm hoping, or whether it's two, which is a possibility, will we, we do you believe if you had to predict we will see more of this in the Republican Party because it was effective and successful for Donald Trump, Newt Gingrich, and for many many in between Tea Party uh, individuals within the party? Look, the problem is uh, a once leaders have legitimated this and they've done it and they at some level get away with saying whatever they want and uh, characterizing opponents however they want to do it, mixing facts with fiction for future Republicans, they won't know why not to do it. Uh, at, at some level, even if President Trump is defeated, they, they'll think they can do the same. And there is this whole world of conservative media now, which has expanded well beyond Fox News and social media, where if you throw these kinds of arguments about people out there, they'll stick, uh, or they'll at least be circulating in that media ecosystem. They'll get support, they'll be discussed. And so I don't think those temptations are going to go away. I think you're going to see a lot more of this. In some ways, it can get worse. Uh, I mean, in a world of doctored videos and uh, manufactured images, it's just too easy for politicians to basically hit that switch and and throw out malicious information. Did anybody in the GOP try and stop Newt from taking the party in this direction? Kind of, but a lot of my book is about how Republican leaders said they didn't like him and they understood in interviews that this was toxic politics. But what was really notable, even in the 80s, most Republican leaders either openly embraced him and and led him into the leadership or they echoed exactly what he was saying. They used his rhetoric. And I think uh, they thought they could contain him. I mean, when he is elected House Minority Whip, one of the people who votes for him is Olympia Snow. Uh, who, you know, fashioned herself as very different than Gingrich, but thought, well, this guy's going to bring us power. And I think that's a story right through now. 
Um, there's uh, so much I, I want to ask you. Um, journalists today often feel that the president views them as the enemy of the people and, you know, the, the free press and forgets that we have a constitution. And, and that really makes us, I think, w- one of the reasons we're so great as a nation, because it sets us apart from so many other nations with that freedom, with that constitution, with that First Amendment. Um what would you say the role with journalists then in the 80s versus now is with regard to like Gingrich then and Trump now in these tactics? It was some of the same questions because Gingrich often used the media, not the conservative media, regular television, the newspapers, the mainstream. He attacked them. He also was very critical. He said they're biased and they don't put out what we have to say fairly. But he went on television all the time. That was his platform, cable especially. And he used channels like C-SPAN and the networks to get out these messages. And he understood instinctively, a little like Trump, that if you give the media provocative material and confrontation and conflict, they almost can't resist covering you. Uh, and, And so this was his weapon of choice. And journalists then were caught up in what do you do? Uh, You have to cover him. He was becoming an important player. He was engaged in serious battles, but they understood they were being used by him. And and that's a dilemma you hear all the time today. I'm not sure journalists have really figured that out. Yeah, it's it's mutually beneficial. They're using each other, right? They were then and they are now. Speaking of then and now, you know more than anybody, Julian, that you can learn from history. You can learn what people did right, what people did wrong. What did Democrats do then and how did they respond? And, and what should they take away from that now with their efforts to respond or to counter uh, attack Trump, especially when you have a general election coming up in November? Well, I quote in my book in the intro, I quote Stephen Bannon uh, before getting into the history, who says that Republicans come for the head wound and Democrats come for a pillow fight. And in many ways, that was the story of Gingrich's rise to power. He was ripping things apart. He was going for the kill. And Democrats were either not uh, aware of this or didn't want to acknowledge what was happening. And they were very passive. They tried old school politics against Gingrich's new school politics. And ultimately, they were swept up by this. They, they lost. Uh, and I think Democrats can't be that way. They can't replicate what they don't have to replicate what Republicans are doing. But you have to have a more sophisticated media counterattack. You have to be more direct in speaking about what Republicans are doing. Uh, otherwise, I, I think this is a problem the party keeps, uh, you know, falling into. They they don't want to go there, uh, but they're often so restrained uh, that they become ineffective. It's not a surprise the Lincoln uh, Project is run by former Republicans or existing Republicans, and they have the most blistering ads out right. there. Yeah. Well, that's interesting that you bring that up. I mean, I think some people even on the right who like Trump will look at clearly when you look at not just the, the, the money that's coming from, you know, anti-Trumpers, uh, former right righties or people on the left, but the people watching them. I mean, you know, how many times people are viewing these and what they're doing. Very interesting that you have people on the right attacking somebody who has taken their party off the rails, but they do it in a way like he does or like Gingrich. Uh, re- referencing your book. Um, and, and, and now that's very interesting. Michelle Obama had said, as you know, when they go low, we go high. That failed. That failed. Yeah. yeah that it failed. Sadly, it did. Sadly, you would think, I'll take the high road. 
No, not 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 when it comes to this. Um, I want people to buy your book, but I find when I'm doing research on things that I will learn things or, or find things out. What what did you find out and that you did you share in the book that was the most shocking? Well, there's a story toward the end of Jim Wright's scandal. It's a kind of early Me Too story where Jim Wright had someone working for him who had a very horrendous incident happen in his background. Uh, and it comes out in the front pages, in the style section of the Washington Post. And, and it, it's about a brutal attack that he conducted or he was responsible for, he was guilty of. And he got out of prison and lived a life uh, in Washington at very high levels of power. And I think when people read that story, it's kind of you drop the book and you're like, I can't believe that was OK in Washington, D.C. And still is. Right. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, to your point, uh, Julian, thank you for being with us today. Follow Julian on Twitter at Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. Once again, get the book. It's called Burning Down the House, Newt Gingrich, The Fall of a Speaker and the Rise of the New Republican Party. You can also catch Julian on CNN, where he's a political analyst. Always a pleasure. Mwah. I am so glad you, you came back on the show. I miss you, and I'm glad to have you back. Thank you. It's great to be back. Okay, have a great day and weekend. And you too, man. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. With the new iPhone SE for less than 100 bucks at Metro, you rule. It's the most affordable iPhone on the number one brand in prepaid. So whether you're studying online or FaceTiming. Hey, Mom. Hi, dear. The iPhone SE has all you need. Switch to Metro and get the iPhone SE for $99.99 after rebate redemption and six months of service with AutoPay. Metro by T-Mobile. Rule your day. Limit one per account slash household. Requires port and ID validation. Not valid for numbers currently on the T-Mobile network or active on Metro in past 90 days. Restrictions apply. See store for details. At Speedway, we've always been here to get you what you need when you need it. We're committed to keeping our stores open, clean, and safe, so you can stay fueled and refreshed all summer long. We've got cold drinks for hot days and frozen drinks for even hotter ones, plus energy boosts, quick bites, and pick-me-ups. We're always on your way, and we're always here for you. So no matter what you need, when you stop by, we'll be ready. Now buy any three cooler beverages and get 500 bonus Speedy Rewards points.